You're listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, we get reaction to the decision by the Public Utilities Commission to deny Honua Ola Bioenergy's power purchase agreement with Hawaii Electric Light Company. Is this the end of the road? Will uh, the company head back to the Hawaii Supreme Court? The state consumer advocate opposed the purchase agreement, as did Life of the Land's Henry Curtis, who applauded the decision. Uh, ProVision Solar's Marco Mangeldorf says that the PUC absolutely made the right call when it came to protecting the needs and well-being by rejecting a tree-burning power plant that is not needed at kilowatt price, which cannot be justified. We on the Big Island and in the state can and must do better than having any new power generation be combustion-based, end quote. And this morning, we talked to Warren Lee of Honua Ola Bioenergy about what comes next. First of all, we're very disappointed with the uh, decision. It was a uh, split decision, two to the one. And uh, right now, we're looking at the, uh, what the what the DNO says. But certainly, we will be filing a motion for reconsideration with the Public Utilities Commission. That's our next step. When will you do that? Today? No, we have uh, 10 days, 10 calendar days to file. So again, we need to review in detail the uh, decision and order, which is, includes the findings of facts and the conclusions of law, and uh, understand, first of all, how the PUC came to that decision, what the majority of two, after extensive uh, written presentations and a evidentiary hearing that was held in early March of this year. So we're still looking at it, uh, and again, we've got 10 days, so that will take us until uh, Early June. Could you go to the Supreme Court straight away? We could, but what, the, what will probably happen is that the Supreme Court will say, well, follow the uh, procedures, and procedurally, the uh, motion for reconsideration would occur before uh, sending anything to the uh, appealing to the state Supreme Court. But that is also one of our legal options. In its decision, the PUC also indicated that this doesn't preclude this project from coming back before the commission, um, you know, in a competitive bid. Yes, they did mention that. In fact, they mentioned that before. You know, there is no competitive bid, RFP out. Uh, So when is that going to happen? One year from now, five years from now? I think this plant is ready to go. It's 99% completed in construction. We have employees on board who are trained, who's been, who are, uh, itching to operate the plant. So we're ready. Well, we can't wait for an RFP. You know, plus we've got over $500 million invested in this plant, and it can't just sit there waiting for an RFP. A number of environmental groups, you know, have lined up uh, against this project, you know, because of the greenhouse gas issues, the cost uh, to consumers. You know, Life of the Land is concerned that, you know, they don't know who the entities are that are going to be planting the trees, harvesting the trees, that kind of thing. What do you say to those folks? Well, first of all, the uh, remand to the PUC said basically do a greenhouse gas analysis, life cycle analysis, cradle to grave. And we believe that we did that. We met the burden of proof. We had an international consultant, environmental resource management, work on this greenhouse gas analysis. And, you know, their team consisted of a person that sits actually on the United Nations IPCC committee, subcommittee, Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Control. So to say that a greenhouse gas analysis is inadequate or doesn't or lacks detail, uh, I think that is really a misstatement. You know, our, our goal, again, is to be carbon negative. Not our goal, but our commitment is to be carbon negative. We have agreements with the National Forest Foundation, for example, that will plant legacy trees, trees that will never be cut in the uh, national forests throughout the United States. Uh, that will be planting 3.1 million trees uh, initially over five years, and then could be more. But this is all contingent upon getting a non-appealable purchase power agreement from the Public Utilities Commission. So I think the environmental issues that was on remand, the greenhouse gases uh, issue, has been resolved. We met the burden of proof. And that was the dissenting opinion from uh, one of the three members. But, uh, you know, you did have the two commission members, including the chair, uh, who voted against the approval of the power purchasing agreement. Um, Mr. Griffin is going to be stepping down. And there's some thought that, you know, with the incoming, the new member uh, joining the commission, that, you know, that could possibly change things. What are your thoughts on that? I think if you uh, certainly we know where Chair Griffin stands based on the uh, decision and order. The uh, new 
commissioner, which comes in and replaces Chair Griffin. Uh, you know, uh, I think she'll, she will probably have to look at the record. And if they have an opportunity, hopefully they will address this. But I think uh, that the motion for reconsideration, being that we're going to um, have to file it within 10 days, 10 calendar days from yesterday, that the new commissioner probably will not be involved with the uh, motion for reconsideration. And then how do you answer to the concerns that the state consumer advocate has about this project? Well, you know, the state consumer advocate, if I understand correctly, based on their filing, says we have concerns, and if these concerns are addressed, then we said we would address those concerns as conditions uh, that they would support the project. And, uh, you know, pretty much that's where they left it, although they didn't come out wholeheartedly saying this project should be approved as submitted. But uh, that was quite extensive in our evidentiary hearing. We made that point, our commitments to them. And also in the uh, closing briefs, that was part of the decision-making. And I have to ask you about a bill waiting signature uh, by the governor, 2510. There are some concerns that that bill was written to benefit your company. Uh, It's very prescriptive and sets out, you know, what types of green energy should be allowed on each island. Well, I'm I'm not that familiar with 2510. In fact, uh, I looked at it, and but I didn't follow it all the way through. But again, I think the uh, concern that the legislature has is, you know, you have all these intermittent variable resources, and you know, if you have don't have a reliable power supply, the economy is going to be in dire straits. So I think that's why the bill was uh, put forward. I know it started off when I was following it. Started off at 50 or 55 percent firm renewables versus uh, no versus no cap or no target uh, for firm renewables, and it came out at I don't know 30, 35 percent. But I think firm renewables, uh, uh, firm energy, first of all, is important to keep the lights on. So. Well, I think some people might find it hard to believe that you wouldn't submit testimony on that bill. Yeah, well, we knew that uh, we had enough on our plate uh, going forward with the PUC. So, you know, why raise the higher people and say this is a whole new Ola bill like the, uh, like the theory is? But again, you know, it's, uh, you need to keep the lights on and you need something that you need a certain percentage, a portion of your plant system that can be independent of whether the wind blows or the sun shines or if your battery is fully charged every day so that you meet the uh, system requirements. When you have, you don't have enough power, you're in uh, deep economic uh, straits. Do you have plans to lobby the governor to sign this bill or not? Oh, I don't think so. We won't lobby the governor to, to do that. I mean, it's up for the governor to decide what the legislature, the policymakers have decided. You know, uh, we're here. We're at the point of having a uh, purchase power agreement. Now we've got to go through a um, motion for reconsideration, and hopefully that'll settle it, and we'll be on board. If not, we'll go to the uh, next stop is the Hawaii State Supreme Court. So whether this bill would benefit or not, benefit us or not, is I would think for the future power generations that uh, request for proposals that will be coming out from Hawaiian Electric and the uh, Public Utilities Commission. So the company plans to file its appeal before the PUC within the next 10 days? Yes, definitely. We have, uh, you know, a lot of money invested to complete this part project at the current uh, status of 99% completed. You know, based on the 2017 decision and order we got from the Public Utilities Commission to complete this project as soon as possible and no more extensions. So you're not going to walk away at this point? It would be very difficult, Catherine, to walk away from this project at this point. That was Warren Lee of Honua Ola Bioenergy talking to us about what the company's options are now that the PUC has given a thumbs down to a power purchasing agreement. Uh, the Big Island plant sought approvals to burn trees to produce electricity at the old sugar processing plant on the Hamakua coast.
Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check today is about the Honolulu Police Commission's pick for police chief. Civil Beat Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So this is a report uh, or story by your reporter, Jacob. Jacob Giannis, yeah, he's been covering the the police beat uh, for some time now. That means he had to sit through all of those interviews, uh, all of the discussion by the police commission, uh, which finally, after, boy, it's taken a year. It's hard to believe it's been a year since Susan Ballard uh, left HPD after a a poor job performance from the police commission. But uh, yesterday um, they came, the commission, to a full agreement, a unanimous choice that Joe Logan uh, will be the next police chief. He replaces the interim chief, uh, Roddy Vanek, of course, who's been holding down the fort. And um, an interesting pick. Remember, this? we, we actually saw the public, all four of these folks, uh, interview live on TV. They were on PBS Hawaii Insight last week with Yonji Denise. And that was an interesting model because there has been criticism that the process not only has it taken too long, but we really haven't been able to see how it's how it's proceeded in the public. So kudos to the commission for getting that televised and actually televising or broadcasting rather the deliberations yesterday. Uh, but boy, it has taken a while, hasn't it? Yes, it has. And we should mention that, yeah, we also got a new uh, school board chair and then those proceedings <laughs> were also open and and people could watch, uh, you know, yeah, it's the a, decision as well. Yeah, approach. Mm-hmm. You wonder whether that might be a model going forward. I, uh, the, we did interview Jerry Gibson and Shannon Alivado, two of the commissioners, the lead commissioners, not too long ago at Civil Beat. And we asked him, did, did you point to, to Maui as your example? Because remember when Maui hired their police chief, Maui County, uh, who, they hired someone from Las Vegas. It, too, was, was broadcast. And they said, no, they had actually already been planning to do that. Who is Joe Logan? Well, he's a retired major general uh, who has continued to work. He most recently as a criminal investigator with the attorney general's office. This was out of more than 20 candidates that applied for them uh, were narrowed down. There were two HPD majors, Mike Lambert and Ben Moscovich. There was also a New Jersey officer, uh, Scott Ebner, the only outside candidate. Uh, But ultimately they settled um, on Joe Logan, uh, who may or may not be known in part because of his work at HIEMA, the Hawaii Emergency Management Association, which, uh, of course, included that unfortunate false missile alert back in, in January 2018, which which we all remember. Hawaii Emergency Management Agency, I should say. Right. And he uh, was but, the you know, adjutant general there at the time. Correct. Right? Yeah. In fact, Ann Botticelli, one of the police commissioners, asked him about that. He said, well, what did you learn from that? And he, he said, of course, it was a very unfortunate mistake. Uh, but the the takeaway for him was don't uh, don't ignore the small details. Don't just focus on the big picture. Beware of everything. And even though it was it was a mistake, a human error, um, I think we there's some of us that still have psychological scars from that time. It was a pretty big deal. So that was something that uh, the the police commission was interested uh, in learning about Joe Logan. Yeah, and uh, Logan, if I recall right, well, isn't he a, a St. Louis high school grad? Uh, and I think he also taught at uh, Hawaii Pacific University. Yeah, it's quite a quite a long career, forty one years. And, and and by the way, he says he's he's on board for the the long haul at, at HPD. He doesn't plan on just five years. He's looking at, I think he said even twenty years if, if that turns out to be the case. The things that he stressed that seemed to be of appeal to the commission was that uh, he was focused on officer wellness, making sure his. His uh, staff is, is, is healthy and, and, and can do their job. He does want to re- reinstore trust in the public, which has been damaged. Gosh, I don't even know if the right adjective is here. It's <laughs> very severely by the, uh, by the, um, the Chief Lewis K. Aloha scandal. And then, of course, he also wants to focus on, on recruitment because they are lacking a lot of officers. He says they might have to revisit uh, the job requirements to get more officers on the force. Yeah, and uh, you know he is a, a former police officer. I think he he was in a, a solo bike detail. He was mm-hmm. for 20, 20 was years, I think, way, with the force. Yeah, it was back in the day, uh, nineteen eighty-two to twenty twenty-two. He was a detective on the robbery detail. That's in the criminal justice division. Uh, but you know, 
most of us probably in the public don't remember Joe Logan for for that he was a cop, but clearly that was a factor in the determination of the commission to get somebody. And one other thing, Doug Chin, another police commissioner, did express concern that the New Jersey guy might take him a little time to get up to speed, learning how things work on Oahu, and that maybe there wasn't time to get up to speed that you really needed to get somebody on board who understood the local law enforcement system. Yeah, and uh, Logan, I think, comes from a, a family of uh, police officers. I think his father and brothers, and uh, and like I said, he himself was one. So, yeah, he can hit the ground running. So we'll have to see uh, how he does. Yes, we will. We'll be following here at Civil Beat, I can tell you that. All righty. <laughs> well, that was Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read Jacob's story online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a mission to create relevant and transformative experiences through art with collections of Asian, European, and American works, including arts of Hawaii and textiles. HonoluluMuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Colleen Morrow, author of Spiritual Telepathy. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about ancient techniques that will help you access the wisdom and guidance of your own soul. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Members of the Senate Health Committee paid a return visit to the Navy's Red Hill Underground Fuel Facility yesterday afternoon. It was requested by the chair of the Health Committee, Senator Jarrett uh, Keoho Kalole, just before the end of the legislative session. We talked to the senator this morning about whether he felt reassured by the military's efforts. Well, it was to see the status of their uh, remediation plan. They are pumping water out of that Red Hill shaft that was contaminated with the petroleum after the the fuel spill and running it through uh, the giant filtration systems and flushing out that that entire system. And so what seems to be happening is it's working. The oil sheen that we viewed personally on the top of the well shaft back in December when we first toured the facility is gone, mostly. The readings that they've been taking from the well water that they're pumping out have consistently been under the thresholds. So I think that's a good sign. But there are still outstanding questions about where where all the fuel went, how much of it contaminated the Navy's water system, and how much of it percolated down into the groundwater, and how much of it is still just sort of saturated in the general area of the facility. So the fact that the water they're pulling out now is showing lower levels of contamination than it was back in December is a good sign. The next step to this, which is going to be informed by uh, ongoing well monitoring um, out around the Aya Halava area, and then by these reports that are due, is going to be where we think the rest of the fuel went. Uh, and that's really important because, you know, that's going to impact the Board of Water Supply's capacity into the future. Right. And there, you know, is concern about a possible moratorium on development that has people a bit nervous. Right. Because those are major board of water supply drinking water wells in that IA area. It's a really urban area. And to not have access to that well capacity is a really big problem for us in the urban core in central Oahu, and then for the rest of the island, because we're all on one system. You know, the other thing we that came up, not on the tour, but while we were going on the tour, is that the Navy announced that they're pumping a million gallons over their permitted allotment at the Waiava well, or, you know, over more toward Pearl City. So there was a discussion there about whether, 
you know, the Navy's not on the border water supply system. They don't have to follow these uh, conservation measures that the public is being asked to follow right now. And that might ratchet up and, and become much more invasive into the future because of our border water supply capacity. So, uh, you know, that was really surprising to hear that the Navy has now exceeded their permit capacity. And I think that's an important piece of this conversation that we have to have going forward about fairness and about how we're all going to utilize the groundwater resources on the island responsibly. You know, if we have to shut down municipal golf courses or stop watering fairways at the public golf courses, then I would expect the Navy to to proceed in kind, especially if they uh, are now pumping over their well capacity, authorized capacity, uh, in order to, to maintain the status quo on their facilities. We did pose uh-huh. that question to them about a month ago, and they did say that they have restricted landscaping uh, irrigation on the golf courses, at, at the parks. They put in low-flow shower heads at the military barracks, that, that type of thing, and they've shut down the car washes, but they don't fall under the Board of Water Supply. So if there were to be a mandatory restrictions on water use, it wouldn't really apply to the military. You're right. And so that's part of this whole discussion is what's fair and appropriate. And a lot of that is going to be informed by what's going on in the groundwater in Halaba. And so that's part of why we went back was one of the best indicators of what's going on is the well where the spill happened. And so what we know right now is that the water that they are pumping and flushing out of that Red Hill well, which was ground zero for this fuel leak, is showing trace amounts of the petroleum Uh, hydrocarbons. That doesn't mean it's safe to drink, but I think it's a good sign that the plan that the Navy executed back in February seems to be going as planned. There are now, now we can sort of move to these other questions, whether the Navy water system flushing plan that they executed is actually working because there was a lot of public testimony in the fuel tank advisory committee meeting last week from residents that calls that into question. And then there was a broader discussion at that meeting last week about where the groundwater contamination is going and what the extent of it is. It seems like from the monitoring wells that they drilled uh, pursuant to this remediation plan that the groundwater contamination is not moving in that direction, but there's still an area to the west that they don't have good monitoring for. And so it's really going to be a long time before we have enough data to really show the extent of the contamination in the groundwater. It's just this was an update to see what's going on right at the, at the facility itself. Has the military determined that you know there's a need to send those divers down again? Do they check on it periodically? So the well, no. They have a shaft that goes down about 80 feet. You can look down into it, and then they have cameras in the well itself. And so when we were there in December, the cameras that were uh, broadcasting images of the top of the well, you could clearly see an oil sheen uh, on the top of, on the surface of the well water. And that wasn't present, that wasn't significantly present when we uh, went there yesterday. They also have absorbent pads that they've since put into the well surface to try and absorb surface oil sheen. And those seem to be working, and they've been, uh, according to the Navy, they've been picking up really minimal amounts of contamination. So it doesn't look like there's a need to send the divers down there anymore. So that's the status of the the well itself. Okay. It seems like the flushing is working, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they are ready to re-engage the well or that we can just say that the contamination in the well area is you know, it's, it's gone. What seemed like to me is that there's a significant reduction in what looked like, in, in what things looked like when we were back there in December. So it looks like they've got a, a lot of the oil. The problem and the question is, where is the rest of it? How much JP5 exactly did the Navy lose in the spill? And where did it all go? If it's no longer in the Red Hill shaft at massive amounts, then where is it? Did they flush it all out of their distribution system? Did it overflow into the stream during the spill event? Or is it all in the groundwater moving toward Waianae? Uh, We don't know those answers. But what we do know is that there's far less of it present in the well itself. 
than there was in December. And did the Navy give any reason why they can't release the report now and why it's going to be sometime in June? No. What we had heard during the the closing days of the legislative session is that they were targeting a, a June date. You know, they didn't really let on when exactly that was going to be released. But we do have a commitment from the Navy that they will come back to the legislature and appear for briefings on the findings of the investigation and also on the defuel plan once that's released. They, they recently complete, completed this third-party assessment, and they're using that to facilitate the completion of the defuel plan. Okay, and would that be so, your committee or a joint committee? Yeah, that's likely going to be a, a joint committee proceeding, informational briefing again, uh, once, once the report is actually released. You know, the other thing is that the Department of Health has been hesitant to be as forthcoming with their findings and, and opinions on the situation because of the litigation. So now that the litigation is clear and we we have this report hopefully uh, coming out very soon, we hope to get everybody back to the legislature to have an open discussion about what's happening right now, uh, what that data indicates is it, we should expect to happen into the future, and then what the plan is to address that. Uh, going forward. So a lot of the lingering long-term questions, you know, are going to remain outstanding into the future. But the purpose of the trip yesterday was to at least get an understanding of what's going on at the facility, at the site of the spill. And so there were some encouraging things that we saw from there. That was Senator Jarrett Keohoku. Kalole uh, talking with us following a return visit to the Navy's Red Hill shaft to get an update on the flushing of the system and the military's efforts to conserve water. The military is expected to release a report of an independent um, a company on the defueling process of the tank in June. In our nod to National Photography Month, we spotlight a Hawaii photographer and teacher. Uh, David Ulrich is the creative director of Pacific New Media, which offers all kinds of classes, including photography workshops. He's also the author of several books. His latest is The Mindful Photographer, Awaken the World with the Camera. Well, I've been thinking a long time about why photography is important in our culture. Obviously, everybody makes pictures and everybody communicates with pictures. And I really think that a camera in your hand is an invitation to connect with the world. You know, many people think of mindfulness in a fairly narrow way. They think, oh, I'm aware of myself. I'm aware of my breathing, my thoughts, my feelings, etc. But really, mindfulness is an awareness of the whole of the moment which not only includes myself, but includes the outer world. So if I become aware of my sensations, my feelings, my thoughts, those are linked to what I perceive in the outer world. Dorothea Lange, the Depression-era photographer, said, the camera is an instrument that teaches people how to see without a camera. And I think that's wonderful advice. I think that we need to be much more aware and attentive of what is taking place in our world today, especially with all the issues that need to be addressed. And I really do think that photography is a way of expanding our awareness and attention, both on ourselves and the world itself. Well, you know, particularly when I look at a landscape photo, I mean, I feel my place in the world, you know, in that moment in time as I'm looking at this image. I guess that's what draws me to landscape photography. Right. I mean, we feel the moment of time in looking at an image. And one of the beautiful things about photography is that it can represent paradox. And for myself, I'm really acutely aware that when I look at a beautiful landscape, that landscape is threatened. You know, there's no question that the planet is threatened right now. And I think the photographs can reveal both. They can reveal the the sublime beauty, but they can also reveal many of the aspects of the degradation of the environment. So I really appreciate the paradox 
that photography presents us with. Well, I'm looking at a particular image right now as we speak. It's under camera practice, and it's a, a shot in um, Waikiki Beach yes. of of, yes. a, of a child holding a camera, taking a picture of the water. And I'm just so, you know, intrigued at the little ripples that she, that her body is making in this ocean. Right, right, and she's in the water with a camera, and that's kind of the wonderful thing about cell phone cameras is they're with you always. You can take pictures at any moment. What is it that you, I guess, hope to inspire, uh, you know, in people that that pick up your book? My overriding goal is twofold. One, it's it's helping people learn how to see, and of course, along with that, to to make interesting photographs. And secondly, many of my students, my many of my adult students, you know, come into the classroom and they feel unfulfilled. They're looking for some form of connection to creativity, to creative expression. And I'm really trying to nurture both a connection to a deeper way of seeing the world and a way of engaging your own creativity. I think that for me, creative expression fills a very deep hunger in myself. And do you have favorite places around the island or around the state that you love to visit? I mean, as you probably know, Two other photographers and I did a, a long-term documentary project on the island of Kaha'olawe. And, you know, my interest often is in photographing places of great power, but places that also have tension surrounding them, places that are threatened. So I'm interested in that tension between the intense beauty of the land in Hawaii and how it's threatened by numerous human forces. What is your recollection of the last time you were there on Kaho'olawe? When we were there, it was just before the island was turned back to the state of Hawaii from the feds, and there were still a lot of unexploded bombs littering the landscape. So, you know, we had to be escorted by explosive ordnance experts so that we wouldn't run into or kick any bombs. But I would love to go back and see how the island is healed. I know they've done a lot of revegetation, and I think that, you know, the Aina there is is being restored. Oh, you must go back and check in uh, on Mother Nature and, and uh, just all the work that uh, everybody has been doing to restore that island. I would love to. I would love to. Another one of my favorite photos in your new book is the one on clotheslines, you know, where <laughs> yes. uh, you... Just capture the you know the energy and the movement, and it just almost looks like of another world. My new book, The Mindful Photographer, is 55 very short essays on aspects of photography, and the title of that is "Catch the Wave, Not the Ripple." You know, a lot of photographers go to a subject and they take two or three pictures and then they walk away. Whereas if you really engage the subject, spend some time, you often come to moments that are much more interesting. And it really took me a number of frames, if you will, to get that moment when the laundry was swaying in the breeze the way it is. Yeah, and then the sky just opening up as, at that time too was pretty neat. Oh, I love the way the, the laundry and the clouds interact in that picture. You have another one, when to put the camera down. Well, that was an interesting story. I was privileged to to be part of one of the missionary estates on Maui being dissolved. In other words, they were removing all the stuff from the house. And in that house, there were Audubon engravings, which was a gift when James Audubon stayed in the house. There were presidential portraits, which was a gift when a U.S. president stayed in the house. There were founding papers of many of Hawaii's major companies. And in the book, in Mindful Photographer, I have a photograph of a map, a 1917 map of the sugar holdings on Maui. And literally, it takes up about half the island. And the pictures I made in that house were critical of the Kama'aina families, of the missionary descendants. So I promised myself I would not publish those pictures until the matriarch of the family who gave me access to this home had passed away. So I honored that. I, I really didn't do anything with these pictures because the family was so gracious in giving me access. I didn't want to bite the hand that feeds me. At the same time, I really did have a critical view of sugar production on Maui. Well, there's something about the honesty of photographs, right? Yes, there's something honest about it, but it still always relates to the point of view of the photographer. 
because you're making the quest, the choice of how to frame something, what kind of light, what to include in the frame, what to exclude. So it still is a subjective activity. You know, photojournalism has really moved away from photographs being impartial. And now journalists have a, a different goal. They're trying simply to be honest. And do you have a favorite chapter in this book at all? or? The chapter is titled, Know When to Be Tender, When to Snarl, When to Shout, and When to Whisper. I get concerned that so many pictures are one-dimensional. Everybody's making so-called beautiful pictures, and they don't want to be confrontational. But I really do think that photography can and should be a range of expression. So can we be tender? Can we snarl? Can we shout? Can we take someone and whisper in their ear through photographs? I think that the range of expression of photography on platforms like Instagram could be greatly expanded. What's really remarkable about social media, it's a publishing platform, and you can potentially have a global reach. So I think one's conscience has to come into play. You know, what kind of pictures are you going to be posting on Instagram or Facebook, or what kind of pictures deserve a global reach? Is it really just selfies or food porn? Or can we use the camera for a higher purpose, especially on these powerful platforms? You think about a lot of my college students are concerned with body positivity. You know, the celebration of all different body types rather than just the, the, the look of the model. And I get concerned on Instagram where there's so many people, so-called influencers, pointing the camera at themse themselves and they're still perpetuating these cultural definitions of beauty. And among the college students I teach, a number of them have eating disorders because they are literally trying to emulate the bodies that they see pictures of. And I find that very sad. The American Medical Association has found a causal relationship between Adobe Photoshop and eating disorders in young people. It makes you uh, think about just the influence that an image has. One of my favorites in, in your book is uh, Untitled, and it's a picture of somebody in the ocean in bubbles. And one of my favorite things to do is when I'm swimming and there's a diver underneath is I, I play in the bubbles, the air bubbles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so to me, that's just a very kind of joyous, you know, moment that you've been able to capture. Right. That's actually not one of my photographs. That's a photograph by a woman named Jennifer McClure, and she is challenging the messages that she received as a young woman growing up and that sense of bubbles is kind of a metaphor for she feels that she's drowning in, in all the the rules that she was taught to live by as she was growing up but so interesting i mean i see it as a as a shared moment of glee joy and then she sees it in a different way True. And, and my students have the same response to that picture. And many of them see that picture as very joyful. As I do, I can see that. And others see that picture as a sense of drowning or a sense of being underwater. So it's true. The viewer also plays a role in the meaning of a picture. That was David Ulrich, whose new book, The Mindful Photographer, is available at your local bookstore or on Amazon. We should add that the Pacific New Media summer classes will kick off in June. Look for links on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for HPR comes from Pacific Whale Foundation's 6th Annual World Whale Film Festival at Ocean Vodka Organic Farm and Distillery, June 8th, World Ocean Day, and online June 8th to 30th. Tickets at pacificwhale.org. On the next Fresh Air, comic, writer, and actor Sarah Silverman. She's known for breaking taboos in her comedy. She wrote about the most humiliating aspect of her childhood in her memoir, The Bedwetter. Wetting the bed was especially awful during sleepovers. Now the Bedwetter has been adapted into an off-Broadway musical. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point.
you may be familiar with the long-running reality television series uh, Deadliest Catch, which follows several crab fishing ships in the Bering Sea off Alaska. It's also spawned a few spin-offs, one of which is currently in its third season. It's titled Deadliest Catch Bloodline and follows uh, Captain Josh Harris and his crew as they angle for ahi and other deep sea fish off the coast of Hawaii Island. Harris is the son of Captain Phil Harris of the Cornelia Marie and one of the featured skippers on the original series from 2006 until his passing in 2010. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with the younger Harris to talk about his father's legacy and what he's learned about Hawaii culture. My business partner, Casey McManus, and I, we're remodeling the Cornelia Marie. When we were digging apart the old man's room, we found a compartment full of charts, all sorts of charts. I would think these charts would only be from the Bering Sea, but wrong, they're from Hawaii. These charts, they're different. I feel like I've discovered a whole nother chapter of his life. I really want to figure out what the old man had, had planned here, man. Dude, I do too, I do too. I think we should go check this out. Can you talk a little bit about what you've learned about your dad's connection to Hawaii? Did he spend a lot of time here? You know, the old man went out there, and he, he did a lot of fishing out there. I mean, obviously, it's God's country. Yeah. You know, Hawaii is unlike any other place I've been on this planet. The people are, are just super amazing. And, you know, my dad, he, he was just a great guy. Yeah. And he, he absolutely loved people. He loved good people, and he loved food. Between that and fishing, he always had a dream of catching a big marlin. And between there and Mexico, he, he never actually got to accomplish his goal. I can't tell you, we found these charts. It was supposed to be like a kind of just a joke. COVID hit, and it was like 150 bucks for a round trip to Hawaii from right. Seattle. So we're like, hey, let's just go see what happens. And she's like, I met this guy, Jeff Silva, on the big island there. He's been fishing his whole life there, and his dad did, and his whole family has. So, you know, come over, and I, I got to meet some locals. And I'll tell you what, really intimidating fishermen. <laughs> Those guys, super intense and take me from one style fishery to another, and it's such a different fishery. So much respect for the island, for the people, and it's just amazing, and I can see why my dad spent a lot of time over in Hawaii. You know, I've heard plenty of stories of local fishermen who do get angry over outside companies coming in and fishing waters around the island, so I was curious, you know, how important was it for you to include local fishermen, to include guys like Jeff, and for the show to have local ties. You know, to be honest with you, like we can't do it without, you know, at least adhering to everybody, yeah. you know, and we're not coming over there with 50 boats and we're gonna start doing some crazy things. It's, we got Jeff's boat at our boat and the locals, they wanna help out. And we come over there with the utmost respect. I mean, there's some guys out there probably can't stand us, but you know, you just say, hey, you know, I love the island and I, I spend a good portion of my year here. You know, we try to outreach to the community, just help wherever we can. And one okay. thing that's really crazy that I've got to learn, it's like I've met a lot of the really old, old school locals, yeah. you know. Yeah. And it used to be like, hey, you know, this is our island. Don't think that you're going to get comfortable here, yada, yada. But now it's about teaching the culture, yeah. you know, and teaching how to respect things instead of just being like, hey, get out of here. It's like. This is why we respect things. This is why we believe in what we do, and this is the way we pay our homage. And that has been really cool, and I'll tell you what, because sometimes you don't really know what's going on, but I want to respect a lot of things. And if I don't know what I'm doing, then, you know, I never want to disrespect. And that has been a big eye-opener because things are done a lot differently over there. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot of respect and a lot more knowledge now of the islands and how they became what they became. And it's, it's been really interesting and there's a lot of roles over there that you got to follow. If you don't, you'll be kicked out of there real quick. I think it was very telling of, of who you are and, and your your growing relationship when, when Jeff took you down into Mililii to get help from, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but... Nelson. Nelson, that's right, that's right. You asked him if you could count on him, and he said yes. That was a pretty cool moment to see the old school fishermen kind of bring you into the fold. You know, I felt very blessed in that one because that guy's got quite the reputation. Mm -hmm. You know, he's been in and out of the system because he always fights for his area. And it was an old school rule. That's one thing. You take for granted some things when you come over to an area, especially as a tourist trap on most parts. When you're going over there to be amongst everyone, there's rules. 
and you got to follow them. They follow them. You got to follow them. You don't come over with a big chip on your shoulder. It's like you got to learn the ways. Because if you go to Alaska, totally different. Right. You know, right. The way things operate, it's just it's a you know night and day difference. But it's just a different way of life, a different way of culture on the island, and absolutely amazing. It's one of the only times in life where I'm actually comfortable with my own skin. Speaking of Alaska, in the original series, you guys are fishing the Bering Sea where the seas are frigid and rough. And your show, Bloodline, takes place primarily in waters around the Big Island. And what would you say to people who may think fishing off some tropical islands in warm weather doesn't live up to the show's name? Like, maybe they don't think it's really that dangerous. <laughs> well, let me tell you something. Everything wants to eat you in the water. <laughs> there's there's predators down there. All they do all day long, 24-7, is swim around looking for the next meal. And they're a lot bigger than you. I don't care what shark shows tell you what. <laughs> you ever in the water with one, and you see those teeth? Ooh, man. What would you say is harder laying and retrieving crab pots in rough freezing seas or fishing for a few select types of deep water fish under a blazing sun. Now, it's one of those things that's day and night. It's such a different world, and the talents are so different. The fishermen are so different. It's just two different walks of life. And I can tell you one thing, though, extremely hard if you ever try to hand line in a 140 pound tuna yeah <laughs> i'll tell you what it'll change your life you go home with cuts on your hands or you're missing a finger i remember the first time i saw a fish i looked down and i was like it's not that big and they're like dude that's 200 feet down so oh, bro that's 200 feet down but what when it got up there they gave me this baby gaff you know we mm-hmm. have big gaffs in alaska i'm like you want me to to gaff this big sea monster with this little thing They're like do it now and i'm like i'm scared you know yeah. i mean you guys are tough you know one of the themes that ran through the original series especially in the plot lines that involved your dad was the importance of family bonds i know both you and your younger brother jake worked on the boat with your dad can you talk about what led you to reach out to your older brother, Shane, to help you with the fishing on your show? You know, my older brother, he just got great work ethic. You know, the guy, he fished for a while and realized that it just wasn't his cup of tea up in Alaska. And, you know, he loved my dad. His dad wasn't exactly a stellar human mm-hmm. and still is. And my dad absolutely loved my older brother. He always told me, like, why can't you be like him? Out of the three boys, it's like Shane, my oldest brother, could beat me up. He can outrun me, and he's the Boy Scout. Mm-hmm. I got him to smoke a cigarette one time, and he thought he was going to die for a week. And it was like he was just always a good guy. He got his own company, and he never asked for anything. He always made himself. He always wanted to make everyone proud. And up until, like, I got a hold of the boat and we started doing good, he was the most successful. And him and my sister were by far the most successful of the family. Yeah. And, you know, still to this day, I look up to him and my sister. And it's like we all kind of went our way. And, but Shane, it was like when it comes to this industry and finding somebody with that work ethic, that drive that you can trust, because we're on the verge of collapsing. Mm-hmm. I need the best. And you can't talk to anybody better that's going to understand what you're saying than family. Right now, this day and age, trying to find good help. And you say one thing wrong, and all of a sudden, you don't know what you're going to deal with. And especially finding somebody that's going to be able to come over to the islands and be respectful and understand what's going on and not be an arrogant person. There's a lot of things that go on when you want to hire someone to bring over to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. He wasn't exactly thrilled in the beginning, and it was only supposed to be two weeks. And it turned into a couple months. Wow. But he just wanted to spend time with me, yeah. you know, like because we lost a lot of time. He was the best older brother he could possibly ever have. Well, I'm excited to see what happens. I know ex- oh. episode six is coming up. I'll tell you one thing, and it, the adventure is something that is it, it's just remarkable, you know, and Sometimes I wake up in the morning like, how the hell did I end up here? (laughs) You know, you get in and like people actually get to know you, you know, and you help and everybody helps and you just do whatever you can, you know, and and if you do, those people will die for you. You know, they will, they care. They care about how you are every day. They care about you. They care about your family. It's just real. You know, the community is real. And that is absolutely phenomenal because I have to lock my house in Seattle. I'm sure there's parts of Hawaii where, you know, you got to do that. But 
the majority of it I've seen, it's been open arms as long as you're receptive and you learn the culture and you don't disrespect the culture. And that's the biggest thing. It's like there's a way. It's the island way. And you know what? I'm thankful that I've got a lot of teachers that are teaching me every day. There's always new stuff every day I learn. So thank you. And thank you to the people. All right, let's roll, boys. You never fished out here? Nobody does. Yeah, that's a whole different world. Wow. Welcome to Disneyland. We're fishing on you. My dad had a dream. We're hoping to keep this dream alive. You can do this. That was Captain Josh Harris of the reality TV show Deadliest Catch Bloodline. He was talking with HPR's Russell Subiano. Episode 6 of Season 3 just became available to stream on Discovery Plus today. This June, HPR is teaming up with StoryCorps for the Military Voices Initiative. Our Oahu recording sessions are fully booked. We have a few more spots left for Hilo and our statewide virtual dates. Mahalo for your tremendous support. If you have a military story you'd like to share and missed out on booking an appointment, join our waitlist. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org slash StoryCorps. Well, that does it for us today. Tomorrow, we hope to hear from outgoing PUC Chair Jay Griffin. Got feedback? Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.